Well, not a day goes by when politicians of both sides don't whack the other in relation to policies on cost of living pressures. And yet, arguably, it's Australia's longer term economic prosperity that is of concern, but doesn't really feature. So amidst the election rhetoric, pretty high this week, especially with those inflation figures, we'd like to get a bit specific, if at all possible. What ought to preoccupy whoever wins government? What precise moves ought to be put into action or into planning on our behalf? Well, two people are joining me now who try to think specifics. Peter Harris, he's the former chairman of the Productivity Commission. He was appointed to the commission under the Gillard Labor government, and then he served the coalition for a further six years. He delivered the seminal Shifting the Dial Productivity Review four years ago, which looked at every aspect of Australia's economic performance and made recommendations accordingly. And Melinda Salento is the chief executive at CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, which emphasises constructive ideas rather than merely describing problems, I think. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Nice to be here. Good to be here too. Peter, how would you characterise the economic situation Australia finds itself in? What are the key points you'd like to highlight? We do have, a, uh, you know, a, a long-term demise in our productivity performance and no one's really in any doubt about that. But the curious thing about this is at the same time, you know, we've had decent economic growth and I don't think people necessarily feel the burden in the short term that they might feel from this real slowdown in productivity. And the reason that that's important, you know, can be brought home to you, uh, personal incomes. I mean, we've got a, a reserve bank that, uh, since you mentioned that, the intro, Geraldine, that's been um, uh, trying to suggest that it won't be moving on interest rates any time until wage growth occurs. But you can't have sustainable wage growth uh, over a reasonable period. That's the importance of that word sustainable. You can't have that without a constant lift in productivity. So you might get a short-term shot, but you'll, you'll never get long-term health. Because the productivity is a measure of adaptation, is that it? Well, it, it's primarily that the benefits of that productivity are shared between the business that you work for and yourself. If businesses feel that they're not going to get an enhanced productivity performance by, by making an investment primarily, this is not about more sweat of the brow. This is not about work hard. This is about using better technology and better techniques and then share the benefits. But businesses aren't going to invest if they don't believe they're going to get a productivity gain. And you can see that in the business investment data. I mean, the Reserve Bank publishes this on a regular basis. We can look back to the early 1990s. That's the level today that we're at for, for business investment in this country. It's a very, very poor level of commitment by business to, if you like, new tools and techniques for workers to lift their productivity. All right, we're going to come back to that. Melinda, what's your overall assessment of Australia's economic situation? We've been so focused on what's happened over the last couple of years, and rightly so, that we forget the position that we are in before we entered the pa pandemic, which was really one of sort of stagnation, if you like. Yes, the economy was growing, but it was growing because we were bringing more and more people in. And we weren't seeing businesses having an enthusiasm for investing. We weren't seeing people chasing better jobs. Uh, and so it really was a sense of just everything sort of, you know, staying pretty much the same. The issue for me is that I think there's just this great uh, windows of opportunities in different areas for us to pursue as a country. And we're just actually not being ambitious enough about that. And if we don't get those investments and we don't lift productivity, which is 
I mean, what does that mean? It means we we get more with the same level of resources. You get that dividend and then, then you share that dividend and that's what underwrites rising living standards and the capacity to pay workers more year in and year out. So that's what we need to see. Um, and I do think we need more ambition on the policy front um, to actually provide that sort of light on the hill uh, for business and for workers, quite frankly. I mean, this business of producing a different, more dynamic temperament <laughs> is pretty tricky, isn't it? Um, looking at um, the RBA's Lucy Ellis, who had a very strong remark in a, a comment piece by uh, Tom Dusevic in The Australian earlier this year, rather than the supposed creative destruction of a downturn, what is needed is the creative ignition spurred by a strong economy. She goes on to sort of talk about the fact that we've got stagnant. There's a malaise here. Um, can a government change that, Peter? Or is that got to come from within business? Oh, no, it's not government alone. Uh, we do have a, a tendency, I think, in this country that whenever there's a problem to turn and ask what the government can do first. But there's no question the government has a significant material role to play here. I mean, one of the reasons that businesses aren't forced to invest, notwithstanding their... Um, their concern about whether they're going to get a productivity enhancement out of it is competition policy. Um, so we're not really as proactive as we used to be 20 years ago in promoting competition between firms. And, and there are plenty of opportunities uh, to do that in, in promotion of, of things like um, uh, enhanced research and development and commercialisation of research and development. We're just not as, as strong as we used to be and probably the other area in my view where government could be much, much better and, and we did try and cover this in shifting the dial that you referred to earlier is education, particularly in post-secondary school education where you know the ability for, for people to uh, gain a skill that's going to reward them over a working life is being limited by the fact that those working lives are changing very rapidly and yet they can't go back and reskill readily. So it, it seems to me, looking, that you've got to be fabulously wealthy, a la sort of Cannon Brooks, you know, and uh, the Atlassian boys and or uh, Forrest, Andrew Forrest, to sort of start really thinking into that, that big allocation of capital. But the medium-sized firms, what are they just sort of deciding? Surely they ought to be, especially with low interest rates, they ought to be having a go now. Jordan, let me just hop in there too and just address this issue about uh, are we saying that government needs to drive this? And I'm not saying that either. The point is that if you look at where the big opportunities are, where we should be confident that we can really play, you know, technology, everyone's going to have to be in that space anyway. That's where the world's heading. Digital technologies we've seen take off, you know, through the pandemic and there's more opportunity there and there's tremendous opportunity in terms of managing the transition to decarbonisation. Now, there's a huge role for business there, but one of the things that helps them and supports them and enables their investment is understanding the direction of policy and understanding the, the national ambition, if you like. And that's where I think you know business and government need to to work together, if you like. So I'm not trying to say this is all about you know government leading the way. But the other point I'd make is that if you look at the shape of our economy today, there are now and into the future, the demand that's going to come from the community are also in areas where government plays a really important role. At the moment, we're seeing huge infrastructure spend. We we did a, uh, an event recently at CEDA where we really tried to get insights into how infrastructure spend is working at the moment. And one of the things that comes out really clearly is that businesses that are trying to innovate are running up against 
governments that are risk averse in the way that they tender for these projects that don't allow cost saving innovations and better outcomes to be achieved. And Peter can talk chapter and verse on human services in this regard as well. Mm. So go ahead, Peter. What is it? Is there a sort of a timidity here? Is there? Oh, I, I, I think government has certainly lost the appetite for risk taking. The degree of exposure that ministers and bureaucrats both feel when uh, significant contracts are up for grabs and uh, I guess risk aversion takes over. And we can see this in areas where I think governments have tried to be progressive and that's particularly the application of, uh, uh, of digitisation, if you like, of digital data in framing um, enhanced social policy and things like that. Uh, governments uh, uh, collectively, uh, I think, are aware that there are quite a lot of productivity-enhancing opportunities in this area, but they're not going to put them into contracts. They're going to wait for firms to offer them. And if they're not readily encouraged to do this, I mean, it, it, it's a big investment risk. Why would you take that investment risk of offering a, a digital-based product uh, in response to a, uh, an analogue-based contract? Why would you take that risk? Gosh. Governments are poor at well- that. I mean, when you finished your term at the Commission in 2020, you said then, uh, uh, what we're saying now, productivity had collapsed, wages had stagnated. And then there was this quote, the political leadership tool of choice today is simply to emphasise the positive. And you said there was a tendency to just shift money around and do more of the same. Can you elaborate on that? And is that still pertinent in 2022? Oh, I think the comment on... uh on emphasise the positive uh, is, is clearly being demonstrated to us in this election campaign. And, but there's, there's no commitment to uh, structural reform by either party in any large material sense. Uh, and, and I wouldn't necessarily expect to see it written up chapter and verse in an election campaign. But what you do get instead is find the positive in any set of circumstances, emphasise that and close your eyes to the, uh, if you like, the lack of incentive to uh, encourage structural change. Uh, you know, I'm, I'll just stick with digital for a moment. It's a very good example of this. There's endless opportunity to use digital data to focus social policy better on the disadvantaged, to identify the disadvantaged effectively before they become disadvantaged. But you, you won't find that being used in a data area because governments are terrified of potential privacy problems and uh, because we've had robo-debt and that didn't work well. And mm. all these reasons discourage, if you like, uh, the opportunity for change. Look, I do notice that um, there was a quote in that article, both sides of politics appear to have lost sight of Paul Keating's mantra that political leadership is there to explain the future to a fearful and sceptical electorate. Now, honestly, Melinda, will that win you an election or might it lose you an election? Well, at the moment, there seems to be no appetite for it. Um, And I think it's because it hasn't been done well in the past and people are are now shying away from it. Um, I think we have seen bold reforms in the past, um, and I think what you need to do to get those reforms across is to be able to articulate not just the challenges and not just the skies falling in, but where the opportunity space is. Um, And I think that's one of the things that we've really lost sight of and that we really don't do very well. And, you know, one of the things that we've tried to emphasise here at CEDA in the technology space is that, 
you know, we in the use of technology and data, we should be sending a really clear message that we can do this, um, that we've got this. Yes, there's risks around privacy. Yes, there's a whole bunch of other things that you need to take into consideration, but we're actually pretty good at doing that when we set our minds to it. So where is the sort of the leadership? Where is the, the sort of ambition that says we are really going to be leaders in this space. This is what we're going to do. Government's going to back it with these policies and investments. Yes, there will be transition and change, and this is how we're going to manage it. Um, but it, it just seems that if there's a loser or a potential risk or a potential loser, that, that no one's prepared to have the conversation. Okay. Well, I'll ask you both then, I said we'd do specifics. So, Peter Harris, what is a top order issue for you that any incoming government should and could tackle? especially now given all the global shifts in the economy since COVID? Okay, I can give you some examples, but bear in mind, none of them are going to get an immediate bump in wage growth. Nothing that we're going to talk about here, if we're talking about productivity, gets you a reward in less than, say, three to five years, and even that's being pretty hopeful. So we're really talking structural change here, not not short-term kind of benefit. So with that caveat in mind, I want to go back to education. I do believe one of the biggest shifts that's occurring in front of our eyes, but we're ignoring it, is that we're training people uh, with particular skills via the education system in your post-secondary education opportunity. We're putting them out into the economy. We're finding that many of them are not well skilled for the rapid change in the nature of jobs that's going on. But you get your one shot in the locker under our education system. You get one chance at training yourself for a career. And then after that, if you find your skills aren't the right skills, your opportunity to go back is severely limited. So my thinking is the education sector really needs to consider what I call a right to return, the right to go back, take advantage of some of your existing training, get a couple of micro-credentials and become a different kind of worker. And this can help us in all of the social policy areas where we know we're going to have future uh, uh, worker shortages because of uh, demographics and because of higher expectation for the quality of health and aged care and things like that, childcare. So we just need to adapt our education system better than we're doing at the moment. Just a small issue. (laughs) And Melinda, I notice CEDA's got a big thing on green skills. Are we really equipped for the green skills we're going to need for the future? We did do um, a live stream on that topic. Look, I think it's a good example of the broader agenda. Um, The other thing that we've spoken a lot about is migration. Immigration has been an important part of Australia's economic development for decades. And I think we need to keep focusing on the role that it plays, um, including longer term. We've got a huge number of really clearly identified skill shortages now and into the future talk to any business, they cannot get the data, digital and tech workers that they need right now. Look at what's going on in aged care and human services more broadly. Um, Green skills is just another layer on top of that. I think the one thing I would say is that straight out of the gate, you know, we would like a new government to actually make it easier for the multinational corporations to bring workers into Australia. Every business we're talking to at the moment that's trying to get workers in is saying the process is super slow. In the meantime, it's pretty quick and easy to get out of Australia um, and those businesses are really worried about their skilled workers having been here for two years looking for opportunities overseas. So I think that's part of the skills agenda. It's not the only piece of it. But um, when we talk to business at the moment, one of the things that is weighing on their investment decisions is actually access to the skills and experience that they need to make those investments pay off. Geraldine, could I just supplement that a little bit? 
on yep. migration. The other value in enhancing and bringing back our, our skilled migrant flow is that ideas come to this country via people uh, in communication through science and R&D with other experts overseas, but they equally come to this country in the heads of individuals who've grown up in different systems, have recently been employed in, in, in different organisations than we have in Australia. So bringing in those heads with those ideas is going to add to innovation. And one of the more practical things you can do to enhance productivity growth is enhance innovation. Very interesting. I hope someone who matters is listening. <laughs> and can take this forward. Look, thank you both, uh, Peter Harris and Melinda Salento, very much indeed for joining us. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. And Peter is the former chairman of the Productivity Commission uh, and a board member of Infrastructure Australia. Melinda Salento, the chief executive of the think tank CEDAR. I noticed one of our uh, texters has said the converse of no wage growth without productivity gain is that there can be productivity improvement without wage growth when all the gains go to capital, none to labour. That is what has been experienced in the US and here in past decades. Uh, yes, that is something I think that preoccupies the head of the Reserve Bank. So, look, thank you for that.